This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today, in the second part of an interview with Professor James Herford, we discuss his new book, The Origins of Grammar. This volume takes up the task of offering an account of how human syntax could have evolved. The book first discusses the limitations of other species' syntactic abilities, then characterizes those of humans. Finally, drawing upon theoretical and practical work from many disciplines, a proposal is offered as to how this gap could have been bridged in evolutionary terms. In this interview, we talk about various facets of this book. We discuss why researchers in animal cognition sometimes underestimate the evolutionary challenge of human syntax, and how developments in syntax have made the evolutionary approach more acceptable to the linguistic mainstream. And we talk about the idea of the symbolic niche as being the venue for the rapid co-evolution of human language and culture. Today I'm talking to Professor James Herford about the second volume of his book on language in the light of evolution, The Origins of Grammar. Jim, this is a much larger volume than The Origins of Meaning. Does that reflect the complexity of the evolutionary processes that are postulated, or is it more the extensive nature of the theoretical prerequisites? I think it's very much the latter. Uh, Syntax has been uh, a maelstrom of debate in the last 50 years, and I think the dominant position that's been taken has been rather extreme. It it has a lot to um, to recommend it, but it it has also some problems when you try to consider how language could have evolved. So a lot of scene setting uh, was needed in this case. And also it must be said that syntactic structure and phonological structure are further away from the, uh, the empirical facts, if you like, from the tangible facts. And so there's, there's much more room for theorizing there. And people have taken that liberty and theorized quite, uh, quite widely. So some sorting out needed to be done. You begin by looking at some of the potential precursors to human syntax in other domains, such as birdsong, also the song of whales. Yes, yes. Would it be fair to say that some non-linguists have tended to overstate the similarities with human language and perhaps linguistic syntacticians have tended to overstate the differences? I think that's right. On the whole, I think that the non-linguists have overstated the similarities more than the linguists have uh, overstated the differences. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the overlap between birdsong and whale song and human language is in they're both having phrases of some kind. In human language, phrases are defined semantically, basically, um, whereas in birdsong and whale song, you can identify what they call phrases by the fact that the, the same sequence is repeated over and over again. So there's some kind of a unit there, which is um, uh, probably controlled as a unit in the animal's brain. Um, and repeated over and over. Um, it's been called a phrase in the animal song literature, and they are to some extent hierarchically organized, like human language, but the big difference is that uh, words and phrases in human language are, um, have meaning. They're semantically characterized, and the uh, meaning of a whole sentence is a composition of the, uh, the meanings of the parts, and that's just not the case with uh, birdsong and whale song. 
Do you feel that uh, evolutionary approaches to syntax have tended to neglect the role of meaning? There hasn't been much in the way of evolutionary um, approaches to syntax. The, probably the most prominent is Derek Bickerton, and he has not ignored the, uh, the, um, the connection to meaning. So for him, uh, an early stage is what he called proto-language, and that's uh, meaningful words, words which are actually attached to, to their reference, strung together in an agrammatical way. I think what syntacticians have done is emphasize that the big step that humans take, took was, um, was syntax, that is, the capacity to, uh, to form complex structures, stringing words together. What they have not taken into account so much is the importance of meaning itself, that is, the things we string together, the words, already have a meaning. That gives a, a lot of impetus to the mechanisms which then go on and string words together. So I think um, symbolism and uh, stringing words together are equally important. And symbolism came first, that is, having meaningful units came first. That's a difference of emphasis from mainstream syntactic theory, which has uh, placed most of the emphasis on, uh, on the complex stringing together of words uh, and kind of inferring that it wasn't such a big deal to have words, meaningful words, in the first place. I think that's uh, a false emphasis. It's something of a recurring theme that there are some points of departure with perhaps not contemporary syntax, but, uh, but traditional uh, syntactic theories, uh, which serve to make the uh, transition from proto-language slightly smoother or more plausible. One thing that strikes me is your emphasis on quantitative constraints in language. Yes. Uh, particularly the view is that computational constraints such as working memory in some sense filter the input data available to the child language learner. Uh, what are the implications of that for the system? Um, I think the, the implications are very profound. So uh, the traditional mainstream uh, object of study in syntax has been competence. And there's been an insistence on the separation of competence from performance. Uh, I don't want to undermine the distinction between competence and performance. I think it's, uh, it's a very reasonable distinction. Uh, there have been people who have attacked the distinction, and I think they're wrong. On the other hand, I think that you can't consider one without uh, paying some attention to the other. So um, beginning linguistic students are taught, for example, uh, routinely taught, that uh, there's an infinite number of sentences in a language, um, and that this is, this is clearly a matter of competence. It's not, obviously not an empirical fact that there's an, in, uh, an infinite number of sentences in a language. It can't be empirically verified because you can't ever... You know, live long enough to count an, an, an infinite number. So it's a consequence of taking a, a particular theoretical stance that there's an infinite number of sentences in a language. Another example where uh, theoretical concerns have overridden what I think are actually sensible concerns of performance is the case of uh, multiple center embedding. So an example would be uh, actors, women, men like idolize get rich, uh, or a slightly more complicated one. Actors, women, men, mothers, spoiled like idolized, get rich. Now, if you see those written down uh, and say them over to yourself slowly, you can figure out what they would mean. Um, but they're impossible to process online in, in real time, which is the real circumstances in which language is used, and the real circumstances in which language evolved. Um, so uh, it seems to me that what linguists 
typically have um, been carried away by is theorizing in a paper and pencil way uh, about uh, the consequences of simple rules that they can observe if extended uh, quantitatively. So if there is no um, numerical limit on the application of those rules. And in life, uh, there clearly is a numerical limit. The argument's been made that, uh, that we should separate these two domains, that, uh, that performance is, is really nothing to do with, with the language system itself. But my counter-argument is that uh, the language system itself couldn't have evolved without the proper performance. So you, in order to work with any grammar, you need memory, you need processing. And the processing constraints would have evolved at the same time as the complexity of the systems, the rather more abstract systems, that are being processed and, and stored in memory. Am I right in recalling that Chomsky, in his very early work, was quite interested in the notion of uh, quantitative depth of, for example, possible embedding, uh, but then succumbed to the idealization which, which then became so widespread? Yes, very, very early on there was an article, I'm thinking of the, of the name Hilary Putnam, but I think that's probably wrong. There, there was a, a linguist writing in the 1960s who did suggest um, some numerical limits on, on embedding. And, and I think Chomsky very, very briefly entertained this idea, but I'm pretty sure he, he, he left it uh, very soon. Uh, it doesn't figure in this kind of theorizing. What do you think the attraction is of the, of the idealization that we could, for example, ignore quantitative considerations? <laughs> the attraction is that it's easy. It's very comfortable. Uh, it's an example of trying to find your keys where the light is best and not where you left them. And uh, you can sit in your armchair and theorize and have intuitions about what would be the case if simple rules were allowed to apply over and over again without numerical limits. And you don't actually have to go and observe what, uh, what limitations exist in real life. It's also rather messy. So as soon as you start getting into statistics, it's, um, it, it's not so neat and tidy, the study. Um, and that, that's the attraction. You identify that the, uh, the quantitative constraints uh, enable you to posit languages which cross-cut the usual distinctions that are made in the Chomsky hierarchy, as it's yeah. sometimes been called. Yeah. Uh, what are the implications of that? The, the Chomsky hierarchy is, is in a way a beautiful thing, but it's posited on, in, on infinite languages, infinite sets of sentences. And of course, no creature lives in a, <coughs> in a situation in which it's got at its disposal a literally infinite set of, uh, of sentences. Um, so all life is, is limited uh, quantitatively. You, you don't live forever and you can't make calls that, that last forever. So uh, the, the ap applicability of the Chomsky hierarchy is very indirect. As soon as you start putting numerical limits on it, saying, well, I'm only talking about strings which are, say, up to 10 words long or up to 100 words long, then the whole thing falls apart completely. Um, nevertheless, I do think there is, there's something to it that is the kind of memory needed to work with context-free phrase structure grammars even at, uh, with limits of, say, 15 words, in, involves uh, a richer structure, a richer mental, richer mental structure than, than what's involved if you were working with a, a finite state grammar, what's typically called a finite state grammar. In this book, I call them change state grammars. 
So there's some kind of extra mechanism needed, even to do context-free grammars when they're uh, restricted numerically. So there's, um, there's some uh, there's, there's some value in the in the hierarchy, but it becomes impossible, at least so far, to draw a neat hierarchy with the numbers added in. You know, that is to say that a, lang a context-free language uh, with length of string 10, for example, has more or less computational power than a, a finite state grammar with, with some other um, numerical limit on it. So that hasn't proved possible. And I, in fact, I don't think people have tried it because it, it, it seems very hard to see how you'd go about it. Um, in the discussion of birdsong, I've got a case where I do argue on neurological grounds, on, on grounds of bird neuroscience, that a context-free phrase structure grammar account is to be preferred over um, a state chain or finite state uh, grammar um, account of the bird song, because you can identify two nuclei in the bird's brain, which are rather plausibly identified with different levels in the, in the bird's song. So one, one level called higher vocal center, which um, represents it seems to me, um, the, uh, the, the, higher, the, the higher phrase, and then uh, a lower part of the brain, so-called RA, which actually spells out the individual notes. Um, so uh, I still think there is some reasonable uh, mileage to be got out of a distinction between, for example, context-free phrase structure grammars and finite state grammars. But one must always remember that they're numerically constrained. Uh, and then coming up with a formal theory of the relation between these types of grammars uh, with numbers thrown in is very difficult. I was going to take up that birdsong point. Uh, you resist the temptation to be uh, reductionist, if you like, in, in, the, uh, in positing absolutely minimal capacities to birds on the basis that you think that is neurological evidence that they're actually entertaining slight, something slightly more complex yes. than the, the minimum descriptively adequate grammar. Yes. Yes. Uh, do you think neural, uh, neural studies can generally inform our uh, understanding of where we and other species lie in this hierarchy? I think they may be able to. So um, the difficulty, I think, is this, and I, I go into it towards the end of the book. Um, in the Birdsong case, uh, there's only one level of uh, hierarchy. So there's a, a phrase which consists of a certain sequence of notes, and that phrase is repeated over and over again. So there's basically just one level. Uh, as soon as we've got um, hierarchical phrase structure in language, uh, we, can, we can embed much more deeply. Um, in the, the bird neuroscience, you could find a single nucleus which corresponded to uh, the, the, phrase, the phrasal level, and it's only got one phrasal level. Um, but in, uh, in human language, uh, there are multiple phrasal levels, phrases within phrases within phrases. And uh, it hasn't been possible to find any brain center uh, like the bird center, which, uh, which emits, if you like, or puts out or controls uh, phrases embedded inside each other. Um, there's a study by two authors, Zhubo and someone else, I forget his name, um, dealing with humans uh, carrying out multiple hierarchical tasks. And they do identify a couple of places in the brain which are responsible for uh, higher level organization and lower level, lower level organization. But the problem with their account is still that it, it couldn't possibly be applied to um, embedding at depths greater than one. 
phrases within phrases within phrases. So I don't know what, what, what mileage there is in neuroscience in the human case. Uh, and here, of course, the, uh, you know, the Chomsky insistence on the recursive operation of merge is very important. So this is something that we humans can do, not indefinitely, but to much greater depths than uh, any animal can combine notes. And I suspect that the motivation is semantic. That is, we do it because we have complex thoughts that we want to express. Turning to the next phase of your book, mm-hmm. um, another point of departure from a classic generative approach is your use of construction grammar, although, as you point out, this is hardly heretical nowadays. Do you feel there's a direction of travel in syntax that makes it more open to uh, accommodating evolutionary concerns? Yes, I think there is. And and as you said, I I think uh, construction grammar is more amenable. Um, What's been ignored in uh, in traditional approaches to syntax is, is the existence of complex lexical units. Uh, so we tended to think of the items in a lexicon as being simple words. That's not completely true, obviously. But what's been ignored is the fact that if you allow that, that what's stored in the lexicon is more complex, then what you've got is actually uh, a store of constructions rather than uh, a store of words. So to take a simple example, if you take um, a verb like give, what give brings along with it is, uh, is three slots, three grammatical slots. So it's not just the verb give. It's a whole structure with the verb give at the center and then uh, slots marked with their thematic roles. Um, then idioms, of course, are another example. And it's always been acknowledged that idioms should be stored in the lexicon. And idioms are, are complex. They're syntactically complex. And they, they have uh, syntactic structure. So, you know, a classic example like... Uh, spill the beans and so on. It's clearly a verb phrase and it's got a verb in it and it's got a noun phrase in it and the noun phrase is definite. Uh, and it's always been acknowledged that we, we store those. Uh, but there's not, no, no one has taken this to beyond that, to a whole um, construction-like units, you know, which have got a bit of uh, uh, syntactic structure in them, like, like a whole phrase. Uh, in the case of an idiom like spill the beans, the words are filled in. But uh, the only difference between an idiom construction and a non-idiom construction is that uh, there's an empty slot uh, in, in what's stored for, uh, for other things to be filled in. Even in idioms, uh, like, like spill the beans, there's an empty slot for the tense marker. You can say, you know, he will spill the beans or he did spill the beans or he has spilled the beans and so on. Uh, so there's, there's still um, a little bit of uh, um, space for a variable even in, in an idiom construction like that. Uh, so so the, the view that's taken in construction grammar is that what's stored is not just a list of words, but a list uh, sometimes of words, simple words, but also of uh, bigger and bigger constructions, some of which have a lot of empty space in them with specified slots for variables to be, to be fitted in from other constructions. We'll come back to the um, evolutionary implications of that, which you discuss in the third section, but... Uh, before you do, another perhaps controversial idea that you raise in the second part of your book, which is also relevant to the evolutionary approach, is the idea that there are, out of the set of wholly legitimate human native languages, uh, these actually vary in complexity, yeah. where, where this is actually quite casually denied rather widely in the, in the literature. Why do you think that is? Why do, why do I think it's denied? Yes. Um, I, I think it's for uh, reasons of political correctness. 
uh, and I think this was appropriate uh, maybe 50 years ago, um, when there was perhaps in the population at large uh, a widespread assumption that languages of um, people with simple material cultures had to be simple. And linguists had to get over the, the hurdle of persuading people that you know American Indian languages or Australian Aboriginal languages were very, very complicated and perhaps more complicated in some ways than uh, their favorite European languages or like classical languages. Um, so it was completely appropriate that, that we insisted that uh, we don't assume from the start that languages of, um, of less developed peoples uh, are more simple. Having said that, now that, now that we, uh, we think we're over that, we've won that battle, then, then we can relax and uh, actually look at the facts a bit more objectively and realize that, in fact, uh, languages are not all equally complex. It's obvious if you think of the subsystems of language. So some languages have um, subsystems which are more complex than the corresponding subsystems of other languages. So, um, you know, Latin and Russian have, uh, have case systems, and English has very little in the way of a case system. Um, Finnish and Hungarian have uh, masses of cases. Bantu languages have uh, very complex uh, noun class systems, which we don't. Um, and then if you, you look to see if uh, there's some kind of payoff, there used to be a kind of hand-waving argument that if you found complexity in one part of a language, then it was compensated by simplicity in another part of the language. That turns out not to be true. So a language which has you know, a complicated case system may also have a complicated noun class system, for example. Um, so these complexities in a language add up, and you can get languages which are more complex than others. Of course, one thing that doesn't go through is the equivalence that these um, simple material cultures have languages that could be at all a good candidate for early language in the sense of proto-language, because as you point out, they're, they're extremely complex. They can be extremely complex. They're not necessarily extremely complex. So to jump along a bit, I think what's happened in the, uh, the long history of language on Earth over you know, a couple of hundred thousand years is that um, during the time when tribes were spreading out and were more or less isolated from each other, uh, living in small groups of you know, maybe no more than a a hundred or, or perhaps up to a thousand, um, then uh, complex morphology in particular developed. Uh, then uh, at a certain time when the world got, was getting more and more full up with humans and there was, there was more contact, empires and trade started to, uh, to happen. At that point, um, the, the languages uh, were more and more learned by adults as, as second languages. And that tends to be a simplifying uh, case. It's well known that Indo-European languages have, uh, have lost a lot of their productive intellectual morphology over the past uh, couple of thousand years. Um, and there's always been a bit of a puzzle in historical linguistics. Uh, how could languages have got, in the first place, so complicated as, as ancient Greek and Sanskrit? And what we've seen of their history ever since is simplification. Uh, and I think the answer is, uh, is a social one the tribes and the, the groups who developed the, the complex morphological structures uh, were living in isolation um, from each other. All, all the languages were, were learned by first, first language learners, by children. Uh, there wasn't much influence of people learning the language as second language or, or developing pidgin languages for trade. And so the, there was uh, the possibility of, of them getting 
inflectionally more, more complex, and the inflectional complexity has, has actually broken down since extensive contact between languages, language groups. Obviously, it's a statistical thing. So, you know, you can look at some big languages which are still inflectionally very complex, like Russian, and you can look at, uh, at Chinese, which is obviously a very big language, which is, is just the opposite, highly isolating, no inflectional morphology to speak of. Um, so it is a statistical matter. Is this a view which is, um, you think, gaining currency, or are people uh, more inclined to continue with the assumption of, of equal complexity and only circular long-term changes? Uh, I think it is a view that's gaining currency. Uh, Peter Trudgill has recently produced a book which argues this, uh, and um, he and a couple of other people co-edited a book a few years ago, uh, pushing the same line. I think it's widely becoming acknowledged. And I don't think there's any, um, any influence of uh, generative thought which is pushing one way or the other. For example, uh, I know David Lightfoot, who's a prominent generativist, uh, has said he could see no reason, he said this in print, he could see no reason why uh, all languages are equally complex. Uh, so uh, I think even the generativists would, would agree um, that, that there's no, uh, no big theoretical issue there. Actually, you make this point, uh, the lack of theory-critical nature of this data for generativism, with respect to the uh, controversial case of Piraha and the, uh, the issue of whether the lack of recursion is theoretically significant. You would incline to the view that it isn't really. It's a bit of a storm in a teacup. Is that yes. the um, Yes, I think the Piraha so-called controversy is a bit of a, a storm in a teacup. I think Dan Everett has pushed it too far, um, and I think uh, the people who reacted to it to, to Dan Everett's initial claims, probably overreacted as well. Um, Piraha obviously is in some ways a very simple language. In other ways, it's a very complicated language. The, there are also other languages which, uh, which lack subordinate clauses, um, or, or at least have very, very few subordinate clauses, certainly in use. So I don't think Piraha is particularly unusual from that respect. I think that's the kind of answer that the generativist should have given rather than uh, actually trying to grapple with the Piraha data um, and say, look, Piraha really does have um, embedding and, and subordinate clauses because uh, the, um, the data is very hard to get at. And largely it's a matter of uh, what you think the right translations are uh, into English from Piraha sentences. There's one case that uh, where Everett and Nevins and the other people uh, disagree, and, and basically the, the disagreement boils down to how the, you would best translate into English uh, a particular Piraha sentence. Now, that's a very subjective matter, and I think it's going to be very hard to, uh, to come up with any, any proper answer there. It's rather redolent of the controversy about um, Native American languages in the uh, days of uh, Seeker and War. Yes. Um, in the third part of the book, we've talked a little about uh, the ideas about language simplifying, but you first need to explore uh, how the complexification took place. Well, you talk about the, the pre-existing platform of the, of the abilities of our hominid ancestors. Uh, it's my impression that you're generally more cautious than some people in reading, for example, recursion into non-linguistic behaviours. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I am. I think the big difference is that we can manage to control recursion in producing sentences such as the one I'm producing now um, without any feedback from the outside world. So uh, there are examples where people talk about hierarchical behavior, hierarchically organized behavior, 
So uh, Patricia Greenfield's got a case where she's talking about babies lifting spoons and another experimental case where she gets uh, children to uh, nest little boxes inside each other and so on. And um, the argument that they put forward is that uh, you can see hierarchical organization in their, their way of doing these things. Um, but the important difference between that and managing a long, complicated, hierarchically organized sentence, such as the one I'm producing now, is that when you're dealing with, uh, with spoons and putting them in your mouth and dealing with little boxes that you put inside one another, you're getting feedback from the environment all the time. Whereas what I'm doing when I produce a sentence like this uh, involves no feedback whatsoever. I'm embarking on, on the sentence and holding quite a complicated structure in my head while I spin out the words which correspond to that structure. And I'm, I'm keeping all that, stru that hierarchical structure in my head all at once. And I, I don't think there's any example at all in the animal world or in uh, human non-linguistic behavior which, uh, which has that feature. That is, that it, it's hierarchically organized and not prompted by feedback from the world. Ray Jackendorf talks about hierarchical organization involved in making coffee. Um, but in his example, uh, again, all the uh, hierarchical, um, the, the different routines that you go through are prompted by, uh, by feedback from the world. You know, you have the coffee beans and you have the coffee container and, and so on. Another point you raise in that connection, I'm not sure whether it's the same point under just a slightly different name, is the matter of affordances, which are provided to us by physical objects, but which presumably aren't by words, for example. Yes. I think the, the idea of affordances has been very um, profitable in uh, non-linguistic psychology. Uh, and I think, metaphorically at least, one can extend the idea actually in a way which, which um, jibes quite well with construction grammar. So uh, I mentioned the example of the word give, the English word give, um, and it brings with it a certain structure. Uh, it brings with it uh, thematic role slots. And you can think of these as the affordances, the grammatical affordances of the word give. So each word uh, brings with it um, ways of integrating it with other words, ways of dealing with it. And those are the affordances, uh, the affordances of a, of a cup or, you know, ways in which it uh, presents itself, which allow you to deal with it in particular ways. Uh, and words, you could say a bit metaphorically, uh, bring their own affordances with them, in that they, uh, they have particular specific ways of uh, blending in, being combined with other words. You could call those affordances, but I think it's a metaphorical step. Turning to the um, matter of the process that's taking place, uh, you characterize the, the very substantial changes in, in human linguistic evolution in terms of the, the co-evolution of genes and language. In particular, you articulate this idea of humans occupying the symbolic niche. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us about that? <laughs> yes. Um, we're very impressed by the ways in which computers, for example, have changed our lives. Um, over the past 20 years, we can do things which we... We absolutely couldn't have dreamed of doing 20 years ago, like having a conversation over Skype. Now, uh, I think that the, uh, a revolution um, in human life of even greater scale uh, happened when we first started taking the noises that other people make as not uh, just for themselves, but as actually triggering thoughts about the world in our head. 
so as um, as soon as our environment included not just physical things, but things which stood for physical things that we could think about and which were not present in the environment itself, that that expanded the whole mental life of human beings in a way which was uh, was just not there before. Um, so so that's the symbolic niche, if you like. It's again a bit metaphorical, stretching the word niche. Uh, perhaps beyond what biologists would be uh, happy with. But um, nevertheless, this new kind of behavior, symbolic behavior, completely changed the playing field in, in which uh, people had to, uh, had to survive. They had to, uh, to learn to use the same symbols as other people in the group, and they had to, uh, to, to be able to respond to uh, the, the noises that other people make in, as if those noises stood for real-life situations that they had experienced, but were not experiencing at the time. So a whole new mental life uh, was, uh, was introduced with, uh, with the use of symbols. And this is something that's influenced uh, evolutionary development itself, in the way that you, you liken in certain places to the idea of domestication. Yes. I think that's a slightly separate issue, but it, it's, uh, it's related in parallel. Um, so when we talked last time about uh, cooperation uh, in, in the context of pragmatics, um, it, it's clear that humans, within groups at least, are far more cooperative with each other and uh, can read each other's minds and, and figure out each other's intentions and decide to join in in participating in those intentions to a far greater degree than uh, when other species can. Um, now, it seems to me uh, at least a, an appealing idea that, uh, that humans have selected each other o- over the course of time for these, these qualities. It's noticeable in domesticated animals. The, the situation is a bit complicated, but as a very general rule of thumb, domesticated animals uh, are better at interacting with humans in symbolic ways. Um, Figuring out where a human is, why a human is pointing at something, for example, uh, figuring out the significance of pointing anyway. Um, so domesticated animals are better at that than non-domesticated animals. Um, so that's the beginnings of, uh, of communication uh, in a human-like way. And um, it seems plausible then to, uh, to ask whether humans count as a domesticated species. Well, Darwin thought of this idea and dismissed it because... Uh, he couldn't think of who might have domesticated humans and didn't consider the idea that we domesticated ourselves. So the mechanics of it would be that, uh, that offspring who are actually um, a, bit, a bit more amenable, a bit, um, a bit easier to get along with, a bit more cooperative, would have been favoured. And mates who are a bit more amenable and a bit more cooperative would have been favoured. And so you, you get a, a kind of natural selection for, for cooperation, mind-reading, participating in group activities and so on. This is probably not a very fair question, but how substantial are the actual genotypic changes that have uh, been undertaken in this process? You you talk at some point about uh, an estimate that was made about the information uh, that was relevant to language that had had been changed in the human genotype since the split with... um, I think the problem with genetic studies so far is that we've only got a very, very limited idea of what particular genes do. So there's been a lot of um, talk about uh, the FOXB2 gene, and it's quite clear that FOXB2 
is a team which is involved in language. But it's not the only one. Language is a very complicated thing. And, uh, you know, there can't be a gene, a single gene, for example, for uh, having hierarchical phrasal structure. There has to be uh, a framework of performance, including memory limitations and, uh, and processing power, which, uh, which support uh, the use of complex hierarchical structure. And this would have been provided and fostered by, by other genes. So there's a whole range of genes which are involved in, in complex language behavior. And so far, we know very little about what these genes are. In the course of uh, our descent from uh, the common ancestor of chimps, uh, and even, even going back further, it's clear that the, there's been acceleration in genes uh, controlling development, brain development in particular. So going back beyond the beginning of humans, uh, even uh, with the evolution of primates themselves, there's been accelerated brain development. Uh, so selection for specific selection for genes related to brain development all through the primate lineage. So that, uh, that starts way before humans start. Um, and that's a fairly solid conclusion, I think, of, uh, of genetic studies. So it reinforces the idea that, uh, that language didn't just spring onto the scene in one, in one moment, uh, and that it was built up over many, many uh, thousands of years, probably millions of years, as a complex set of capacities, and, uh, and only finally blossomed uh, in the last couple of hundred thousand years. Uh, but nevertheless, the, um, the platform on which it was built were, was being built uh, along, started to be being built a long time before that. Taking up the idea of, of language blossoming, when you turn in your last chapter to the trajectory of syntactic evolution, my impression is that um, the later stages are somewhat easier. I don't know whether that, is that the case in your view, or is it just that the processes are more widely studied that have given us the extension of, of language? Yes. I, uh, I draw on studies of grammaticalization, and uh, what studies of grammaticalization have built on is uh, classical historical linguistics. So there, there are many cases, uh, as we discussed in the last interview, where, for example, auxiliary verbs have developed out of main verbs, where um, adpositions have developed out of nouns. In some cases, adpositions have developed out of verbs, things like that. I, I took, the, took up the challenge of using grammaticalization theory to account for much more basic features of human language, such as the basic division between nouns and verbs, the basic division, and the basic division between uh, subject and predicate. Um, so the, uh, the last chapter uh, involves quite a bit of speculation about how that could have happened. And uh, I draw on child language to some extent there as examples. But uh, I think a coherent story can be told, starting from simple two-word utterances in which the, uh, the first word is a deictic, like that, and the second word is uh, some predicating word, um, like uh, lion. You might say, that lion, meaning that's a lion. Uh, I think a, a coherent story can be told, uh, building from such simple structures as that, uh, of how you get, first of all, a distinction between function words and non-function words, between function words and content words. So in the example I've just given, um, that is a deictic uh, element and is a, a function word, and the, the predicating word lion is a, is a content word. So the, the first uh, distinction that, that emerged is this very, very basic distinction in languages 
between uh, function words and content words. And then very soon, uh, according to my story, you, you can get a distinction between um, nouns and verbs. And then you can also get a distinction between uh, subject position in a sentence and, uh, and other positions in sentences. So what I undertook was to extend the, uh, the strategy of grammaticalization theory backwards to much more basic elements of language than had been attempted before. And historical linguists may well be, uh, may well take a dim view of this because they're on the whole very cautious about speculating, um, back more, well, back beyond, um, the kinds of languages that we see around us today. I suppose the issue is whether the, whether these claims are falsifiable in principle or whether there are, whether there are alternative explanations. I mean, what, what do you think would be good evidence for the, the support of, of a claim like this? Would you appeal to, for example, uh, developmental studies or uh, evolutionary simulations or something else? Well, evolutionary simulations um, uh, all depend on the assumptions that you build in. So uh, I don't think you can, you, can you can prove the coherence of the theory with a computational simulation, but you can't prove that it's actually what happened. You can show with computational simulations that something uh, could possibly have happened because the, uh, the, the factors interacted in a, in a certain way that, uh, that's predictable. Uh, but computational simulation won't actually tell you what did happen. Um, nothing will, of course. I mean, it's all speculation because uh, we, we can't time travel back 200,000 years to see what people were doing then. So the only relevant evidence we've got is uh, child language, um, the, the development of new languages like Nicaraguan Sign Language and uh, pigeons, for example. The use of child language uh, has to be, of course, very carefully handled. And the best evidence from child language is where children come up with uh, behavior which is not exemplified in the adult behavior. So an example I mentioned in the book is where children, and this is very common, actually use uh, English accusative pronouns like me um, as a subject of a sentence. So I heard a little kid once say, me come to party. And uh, he, he wouldn't ever have heard uh, an adult say that, uh, but it, it came out naturally for him. And so in cases where children are spontaneously uh, producing things which the adults around them don't produce, I think it's reasonable to assume that this is the kind of thing that could spontaneously have been produced by the very earliest humans when, again, there was no one around to, to give them examples. They were producing these examples for the first time. But it is all admittedly extremely speculative. I don't think there's anything wrong with speculation, so long as you admit that it's speculation. And many things that are taken very seriously in science, like what happened in the first trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, are, are also, of course, very speculative, but, but, not, uh, but not fairy tales. Talk about the evolution of languages being dismissed by Chomsky as fairy tales. In these accounts that my, I and my colleagues come up with, there are no fairies, no fictitious entities. We don't um, appeal to magic. We appeal to whatever evidence there is, um, and it's all very um, uh, circumstantial. I was going to ask at this point about the, uh, the Tomsky quote that you cite on uh, page 548. Uh, writing in 1975, he, he remarks uh, rather skeptically, rather scathingly, on the, on the prospect of being able to characterize neuroscience in terms of natural selection. He writes, it would, it would be a serious error to suppose that all properties, all the interesting properties of the structures that evolved 
referring to the brain, can be, quote, explained, unquote, in terms of natural selection. Do you feel that the field has moved on in terms of the discoveries that have taken place since then, that we've abandoned certain problematic syntactic assumptions that sort of license that view, or do you feel that that view was somewhat aberrant all along? Um, uh, Chomsky's a master rhetorician, and it's interesting that he said there, if I recall what you read out from him uh, correctly, it would be a serious mistake to think that all characteristics of language can be attributed to natural selection. Well, he's setting up a straw man there. I mean, um, we're, <laughs> it's reasonable to think that some characteristics of natural language uh, are, are um, due to natural selection, and um, it's not clear that anyone suggested that they all were. So, you know, that, that's a bit of a rhetorical device. Um, the, the studies that I mentioned earlier about uh, natural selection in, for brain development in primates are now very solid. Um, and I think uh, we've got ways now, which we didn't have 20 years ago, of identifying fingerprints of natural selection in the genome. You know, we can actually uh, look at areas of the genome where what's, what the geneticists call a selective sweep seems to have taken place. And uh, the most reasonable interpretation of, uh, of those genetic facts is that there has been natural selection uh, for particular capacities uh, encoded by these genes. Turning to the future then, um, you talk uh, in, the, in the section on that genetic, those genetic studies, you discuss the fact that uh, as things stand, the relation of the genes that are known to have uh, evolved particularly rapidly or surmised to have evolved particularly rapidly in humans to actual uh, structures in the in the phenotype are not very clear at this time. Yes. Do you think that that's going to be that finding out those connections is going to be the source of the next, if you will, set of breakthroughs uh, with respect to understanding language, or do you think, feel that that's going to come from some other direction? No, I think it it, it, it may happen. We don't know whether it'll happen. I mean, the the, uh, the way genes interact with each other is extremely complicated. So the FOXP2 uh, gene down-regulates or up-regulates both about 50 other genes. It switches on and switches off about 50 other genes. And, you know, and they themselves may well switch on and switch off other genes. So it, it's extremely complicated. But the geneticists are, uh, are pretty impressive at, at, at starting to figure out how some of that stuff can happen. So that there may well be some significant progress in the next 10, 20 years in, in that area. Uh, and I think, you know, linguists should uh, should watch it with great interest. Our time is, uh, is coming to an end. I'd normally like to ask, as I, as I will ask, what, what you're planning to do uh, next in terms of research. But I'd also like to ask, if I may, what you would be doing, what you would be leaning towards doing if you were entering the field now, if that, if that turns out to be something different. <laughs> uh, what I'm doing now is um, kind of an antidote to, to two big books. Uh, one of the reviewers of the book we're talking about now said it's a pity that uh, that Herford can't write a, a short book that people could take in uh, much more easily. So I'm actually writing that now. Um, a slim, language Origins, a slim guide, and uh, it's planned to be no more than 65,000 words long, which is nice and slim. And uh, I hope to, to argue for a lot of the things I'm arguing in the big book, uh, the big two books, uh, in that guide. So I'm, I'm pretty busy with that. Uh, it's almost done. It's about 80% done, and with luck, it might even appear uh, in 2013, certainly in 2014. Right, the other question, um, if I were coming into the field now, 
Well, I think what happens in one's career is that one, uh, as one matures, it certainly has happened in my case, one begins to uh, stop being preoccupied with rather narrow questions and start being more concerned with broader questions, or at least to start relating things from outside one's direct field. So a young scholar inevitably has to start by grappling with small, rather limited questions because they don't um, have, have enough experience to, uh, of other disciplines to, to interact with. Um, I would encourage young scholars starting off to be as inquisitive and curious as possible about other disciplines and try to see how they could uh, relate to their own. I remember a long time ago when I was young reading about so-called zoosemiotics, a man called uh, Shebiok um, was at that time very interested in animal communication and behavior. And at that time, I could see absolutely no connection at all between human language and animal uh, behavior. Um, I think that's a pity. If young scholars could be encouraged to begin to see links between their own subject and, uh, and other subjects, that would be a, a good thing. On the other hand, I think that what the field desperately also needs is lots of uh, empirical studies. So um, I applaud the efforts of people like Tecumseh Fitch, who, uh, who actually go out and, uh, and study animals uh, in the wild and so on. And I applaud the studies of psycholinguists who, uh, who do artificial language learning studies in the lab to see what humans do uh, in, in, well, somewhat uh, unrealistic circumstances, but nevertheless experimentally controlled, controlled circumstances. I think there's actually a lot more um, to be done for birdsong, too. I keep being fascinated by blackbird song, which seems more complicated than the stuff that um, chaffinch song and uh, zebrafinch song that uh, the birdsong researchers have worked on. Um, it seems to me there's uh, more structure in blackbird song than one might find in those others. So I'd be tempted to do in empirical work but hoping that that empirical work would not uh, dominate my thinking in such a way that I didn't pay attention to the, uh, the connections between uh, narrow empirical questions and broader questions. Well, we're very grateful to you for bringing all these uh, many empirical and theoretical strands together so uh, eloquently. And I look forward very much to reading the next book. But uh, in the meantime, let me say, Jim Herford, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. I've been talking to James Herford about his book, The Origins of Grammar. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.